postmodern and post-Christian are both terms that the, the church seriously needs to retire. We're going to the world to tell them who we are, and we're not going to the world to present who God is. The world in which so much is focused on building walls and keeping people out, an alternative way to live is to live by... It's almost like raising up white flag and saying, ah, it's all the secular people's fault, and no one's listening or coming to our evangelistic how can we redesign Adventism to be effective at reaching emerging Western culture? That's what the Story Church podcast is all about. Adventism redesigned. Hey everyone, it is Pastor Marcus here and I want to welcome you back to another episode of the Story Church podcast. We are diving into the continuation of our present Padanar series, Deconstructing the Adventist Worship Wars. I know you guys have been eagerly waiting for the, the new episodes that, uh, that Max and I are recording. Now for this week, we're actually doing something a little bit different. I'm not interviewing Max on this particular episode. Instead, what Max has done is he's recorded an entire episode on his own that I'm about to play for you guys in in just a few moments. Now, the reason for that is when we think about the deconstruction of the Adventist worship wars and the worship war conversation overall, uh, part of the challenge that, uh, that we face with that is that very few of us are actually musicians and actually understand music theory. And so it's we're fully aware that there are certainly things we've said throughout this series that have probably been difficult to grasp. And so what Max has done in this episode is he's actually included live examples of a lot of what we've been talking about, 4-4 four, four time signatures, syncopation, um, you know, rhythms and polyrhythms and all those different things. So in this episode that you are about to hear, Max is going to revisit those themes, but he's going to actually show you real examples of what this music sounds like. And as he does that, he's going to take the time to reiterate and re, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? repeat the <laughs> the knockdown i don't know i don't know if that's the right phrase but basically he's going to revisit some of those myths about music that that exist within the music wars that that we have been deconstructing uh throughout the series and so what you get the opportunity to do in this episode is not to only revisit a lot of those uh, really key ideas before we move into the final episodes of the series but you actually get to revisit them with live musical examples that will hopefully enable a lot of the points that Max has made to stick a little bit better uh, and to make a little bit more sense. So I hope you guys really enjoyed this episode. This is a really fun episode. Um, it's absolutely incredible. And uh, Max also takes the time to revisit uh, with, with a bit more context and nuance some of the historical issues that are also at play in the worship wars, the racial issues that are at play. And remember, fundamentally, the purpose of this entire Padernar series is not merely to say, hey, these music styles that conservative Adventism has been knocking for so long are actually uh, beautiful 
cultural expressions that God accepts. That That's certainly a part of it. But the bigger part of it is to point out the underlying assumptions that drive the conservative angle on this conversation. Assumptions, which I insist, and Max agrees, uh, do play out in way more than just the worship wars. They are present in so much more of our culture. And these assumptions are not only unbiblical and ungodly, but they damage, deeply damage our ability to engage the world with the gospel, especially emerging generations, emerging Western culture. Because what we have before us in society now is a generation of people who have woken up to so many of the injustices that have defined historic European culture, right? We've, we've woken up to the fact that the victor often writes the tale and that there are things that we have, our parents have assumed and our parent, grandparents have just taken for granted and brought into their Christianity and brought into their worldview that new generations are sitting back and saying, I don't know, this, this isn't cool and we're gonna deconstruct this a little bit. And, and so what happens then is when we are unprepared to have that conversation or rather said, when we are continuing to perpetuate ideas as a church that are fundamentally rooted in injustice, in oppression, in, in elitism, in racism, uh, and we're just perpetuating those ideas thinking that we're promoting holiness, uh, not only are we insulting God, not only are we insulting humanity, but we are literally strangling our ability to reach people with the true gospel, uh, the gospel of Jesus, because we're presenting obstacles and ideas that are man-made, that are fallen, that are corrupt, that are, you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, adulterated uh, ideas. We're bringing them into Christianity, and then we're pretending like we're preaching holiness. And new generations, guys, they see right through that. They do not buy it because they know exactly where this stuff is coming from. And so I think we have a lot of work to do as a church to repent of how we have normalized and even pedestalized a lot of these fallen ideas, these corrupt ideas, and then in turn uh, had the nerve to say that it's the other stuff that's corrupt and fallen, when really it's, it's these ideas that undergird the worship wars that are in themselves the real corruption. So I hope this episode that uh, Max recorded for you guys brings a lot of clarity with some actual real life examples and uh, it helps make sense of some of the complicated things that he's been describing in the previous episodes of the season. And this is going to set a really good uh, sort of foundation for the final few episodes that we'll be recording in the coming weeks. Okay, guys, uh, I'm going to flip it over to Max and I'll catch you next week. When it comes to discussions about music and the Bible and worship today, oftentimes I find that there's too much talking, not enough examples by people who understand how music is actually made. Now, there are pretenses at this, right? Christian Berdahl does fairly passable conservative Christian karaoke, essentially, but that doesn't necessarily mean he's got like a deep understanding of music or production or composition, right? Like he can do some of those things, I'm sure, but the the depth of inquiry into understanding how other styles of music work isn't that great. 
Ivor Myers used to be a rapper. But again, that doesn't necessarily mean he has even a passable knowledge of theory or history when it comes to music. Uh, someone like Dwayne Lemon, if I'm remembering correctly, apparently used to be a hip-hop dancer, from what I understand. And that basically doesn't mean anything, right? Like, this is just, that's not a basis for saying you have knowledge of music, really. So, there are more competent musicians in the church who have written or spoken on this topic. Um, Lillian Dukan is a big name that comes to mind. I heartily recommend her book, In Tune with God, and with only a few points of disagreement. Um, specifically, she kind of begrudgingly allows for some forms of rock music, like soft rock music, even though she doesn't particularly like it. Whereas, of course, I'm your metal guy who is enthusiastic about all kinds of crazy music. And also, she does very little to seriously touch on hip-hop in that book, which I think just knocks the relevance of the book down quite a lot as far as today is concerned. But overall, when it comes to digging into history, she does a great job um, in that book, so I do recommend it. But a book doesn't allow you the possibility of actually hearing music. It doesn't allow you the possibility of like engaging with someone's words about music and then actually hearing an example. And that's what I would like to do with this today. Now, the amount of resources that have become available for people who want to learn about both music history and theory is just tremendous. YouTube is your friend in this case. Tons of aspiring creators of educational content are making music education more accessible than ever before. And one thing I would tell you is that actually learning how to make music and then putting that into practice is a much better way to understand how music should relate to the church than just trying to understand which kinds of music or which sounds are right or wrong. In fact, if you adopt that later paradigm, I don't think you'll likely really be able to understand or even enjoy most forms of music today. And that's a shame because there really is so much to enjoy. So what I've put together for you here is uh, a demonstration of certain musical concepts that we discussed earlier in the series, as well as, as a few new things. Scales, beats, rhythms, different types of things that you might have heard us discuss in the abstract, but maybe didn't have a tangible musical example of. Now, I won't be covering everything. I'm definitely going to be approaching the theory parts of this from a very Western lens. That's just the tradition I've learned music within, and so that's how I'm going to describe things. But there is, of course, a whole world of music out there that goes way beyond the West, and all of that is worth learning about, and the resources are becoming more and more available. So I can make recommendations if you're interested in that. You know, <clears throat> Excuse me, wow. Get a hold of Marcos or get a hold of me on social media, whatever you got to do. Um, when I finish putting out Reframe Adventist Worship as a video series, I'm also going to be constantly linking resources to that as well. So, you know, hopefully I can give you a push in the right direction if you want to learn more about the non-Western uh, approach to music, or approaches, I should say, because there's a lot of different ways of doing it. But uh, yeah, that basically kind of summarizes it. I'm not going to, essentially, I'm not going to give you musical examples of things that I can't reproduce authentically. I'm only going to give you musical examples from styles that I'm familiar with playing in and writing in, right? Like stuff that I've done, stuff that I've participated in that I know I understand, I'll use those as examples. So 
I would like to walk you through a handful of these things just to give a clearer picture of what we're talking about and so that you can then go hear things in the real world and make the connection like, oh, when they were talking about that thing, that's, that's it. I recognize that sound or I've heard that before. I know what you're referring to. And with that, let's get started. The first thing I want to do is deal with our various concepts of rhythm. So first of all, we have the issue of rhythm. This is probably the thing that people get the most worked up about in Adventism, and especially the concept of syncopation, of course, among other things. So what exactly is syncopation and how is it similar to or different from things like a backbeat or a polyrhythm? So in music, you have different time signatures. The time signature tells you how many beats are in one measure of music and what kind of note counts as one beat. So the most common time signature you'll hear in modern Western popular music is 4-4, meaning, and you'll, you'll see this on sheet music as like a four on top of a four, almost like a fraction, but without the line between. And what it means is there's four beats in one bar. So one bar of written music has four beats and the kind of note that counts as one beat is a quarter note. So this system kind of divides into like, well, by twos, but then you'll see. So basically you've got a whole note. A whole note receives four beats. Um, there's a half note that typically receives two beats. And so there's two half notes in a whole note and four quarter notes in a whole note or two quarter notes in a half note. It, it is like math. It's like division and fractions, right? So quarter notes, that's like one, two, three, four. Um, eighth notes, that would be like one and two and three and four and, right? The division of the quarters. Oh, I'm hoping that tempo isn't too fast for me to demonstrate what 16th notes are like. 16th notes would be like one E and a, two E and a, three E and a, four E and a, or slower. One E and a, two E and a, three E and a, four E and a. So you've got essentially four quarter notes each of them divided into four smaller 16th notes, right? So, and then there's 32nd notes, there's 64th notes, although you rarely see 64th notes unless you're playing something really crazy because that's really fast. Um, but yeah, that's those are the ways we divide up time and rhythm. Now, you can also have things like a dotted quarter note, so that's like, slightly longer than a quarter note or a dotted half note is slightly longer. Like you could get maybe three beats out of a dotted half note. That's the kind of idea. You can extend or shorten some of these things as well. Um, but yeah, that that's kind of the basics of these concepts, right? Um, there's more to it than that, but I'll leave it at that. So let me show you first and foremost, uh, since we're going to be getting into drums, let me show you what we call four on the floor. Four on the floor is a drumming term. And if you're in a band or if you work with a lot of drummers, you'll hear them use this phrase to refer to any beat that essentially has a constant 4-4 kick pattern. Kick meaning the bass drum. Kick because you literally stomp on a pedal that then hits the drum, right? So four on the floor. So that's really basic, that's really simple, and there's all kinds of beats that you can build on top of that. In fact, what you do with your hands and your other foot really defines what is going on in relationship to that four on the floor beat. 
because again, you have all of these different subdivisions, you have all of these different different spaces between those quarter notes, right? The eighth notes, the sixteenth notes, where you can add different accents, different unexpected hits, things that are off the main beats. Now, what I've just said kind of raises a question. If there is such thing as off beats or notes that are off the main beat, then what are the on beats? What are the down beats? This is a question that gets a little bit complicated for Adventists especially because the way the traditionalists have approached this is by using what I call the syncopation for dummies explanation. They will give you the idea of like one measure of 4-4 with an emphasis on beats 1 and 3 as the natural yeah, the naturally occurring rhythmic emphasis and that anything against this is against nature. One of the big problems with this, of course, is that not all music is in 4-4 four, four time. You can have 2-4 time, you can have 3-4 time, you can have 3-2 time, you can have 12-8 time, 7-8 time, 7-4 time, 5-4 time, 5-16 time. There's all kinds of different time signatures, and you can basically have infinite number of beats in one bar it's not practical it's not particularly practical to like go over like 15 um i've done like one piece of music that has a 15 8 time section in it and i can't imagine why you would ever need to go over that even like like yeah it just doesn't make sense to to do much more than that but i'm sure there's some crazy like academic music out there that has done some wild stuff that I'm not aware of. But generally speaking, like you still have the range of numbers between one and 10 that are very commonly used, like that can be easily used in music. So the idea that there's a natural emphasis on one and three in a measure of four, four is a, is a fallacious in and of itself. Cause that's not the only way to structure music. But uh, the other thing that makes this argument a bit of a problem is this idea that two and four, the back beats, are somehow off beats. They're not. All four beats, like all four main quarter note pulses in a bar of 4-4 four, four time can be thought of as the strong beats. They're all very anticipated. They're all very predictable. And if you were to alternate between a kick drum and a snare drum like this... You still wouldn't necessarily think of those snare hits as like wildly unexpected like they're not landing in a weird place the accent sure those notes are more pronounced those snare hits are very pronounced they're very noticeable but you won't lose the downbeat in this type of beat you won't lose a sense of where one is it's not that syncopated it's it barely counts as syncopated it's really only syncopated to the extent that this is an easy way to begin to explain to people who don't know what syncopation is what the concept is like but once you really get into it this backbeat rock beat type of thing it's basically not syncopated all right now you can do all kinds of things to add syncopation to this kind of drum beat so if I'm telling you, okay, this beat is not syncopated, well, what would it sound like for a rock drum beat like this to be syncopated? So let me give you an example of that. Here is a drum beat at the same tempo, but we're going to be hitting the snare drum as well as other things in unexpected spots. And we're going to be playing around with the nature of the beat so that it starts to 
be a little more unpredictable. There's, and it's going to add a lot of excitement. So here we go. So that's an example of a drummer playing in a way that has a backbeat, but they're actually adding syncopation to it, right? You notice that that wasn't necessarily predictable. There was all kinds of stuff happening that was like, ooh, that came out of nowhere. Um, and even some of the smaller and more subtle things were like, oh, okay, the beat is still there, but there was an accent in a new place. There was an accent slightly sooner or slightly later than I was expecting. And that's the essence of what syncopation does. Interestingly, the conversation around syncopation also gets a little bit derailed because Seventh-day Adventists in particular hyper-focus on drums. One thing people don't really realize is that syncopation is a really huge part of melody. Melody, of course, is just moving through harmony with rhythm, right? Harmony is the scale. It's whatever notes you've chosen to be the notes that you're using. And you move rhythmically through those notes up and down the scale. And that's really what makes melody. Melody is just the combination of rhythm and harmony in many, in, well, one note at a time. You can combine rhythm and harmony in ways that aren't necessarily melodic, but that gets into further territory. Um, but when it comes to melodies being syncopated, um, for example, if you go on Christian Berdahl's own website, you can pretty easily find a clip of him singing uh, the hymn, Give Me Jesus, right? In the morning when I rise. So if I were to clap, um, this is not going to be perfect, but if I were to clap while I was singing that on just the downbeats, you'll notice that the word I is off the beat. So in the morning when I rise, you see how I was between those notes. So the word there, there's a little bit of syncopation happening in the line. In fact, if I were to sing it all straight without any rhythmic variation, it would be like, in the morning when I rise, in the morning when I rise. And there's something almost abrasive about that, right? It's kind of obnoxious. It's kind of robotic. It's almost inhuman. And that's just the thing. Syncopation is very natural. You have probably noticed that human speech does not proceed like this. We do not speak in completely even syllables. How awful would it be to speak to people if they spoke that way? That was That's just so, ah, ugh, that's weird. Human speech has acceleration and deceleration to it. It has unexpected emphases. It has things that happen in different spots and pauses and restarts. There's all kinds of things that happen in human speech that give it a natural flow, that give it a very like lively living quality to it, right? You sound like a real person, not a robot. There is syncopation innate to human speech. It is a very natural phenomenon. And our singing sounds more natural, more conversational, more down to earth when we allow the rhythms to shift around a little bit, when we allow for some syncopation. So that is just a little overview on how syncopation works. Now, there is a concept 
that people often confuse with syncopation. Christian Berdahl tends to make this conflation a little bit in some of his material, and that's the idea of a polyrhythm. Now, a polyrhythm is different than syncopation. It may still cause you to hear unexpected things, but a polyrhythm is constructed by essentially layering more than one different type of rhythm over top of another. So here is an example of what you would consider maybe the most obvious example, the two against three polyrhythm. So you'll notice in this example that you've got two notes and three notes taking up the same amount of time, right? And so when you layer those on top of each other, you get both sensations. You get that feeling of two and you get that feeling of three. And when they're combined together, it creates a groove. It creates a feeling that is greater than just the sum of its parts. This practice of polyrhythms is one of the definitive characteristics of West African traditional music. This is one of the things that was kind of unique to that mode of cultural and musical expression. And it was something that came across as novel and new to the Europeans who first made contact with those people. So in a way... And actually, there's some interesting uh, material that Adam Neely has on this. He's done a number of presentations where he actually uses synthesized bass drums to demonstrate that polyrhythms are actually not only analogous to harmony, but they're actually harmony happening at a different end of the human perceptual spectrum, which is to say, you know, a note, if I were to sing a note, ah. What's happening there is my vocal cords are vibrating. They're moving backwards and forwards, and the air is rushing over them, and that's what creates the sound. And in that sense, because every sound is sound waves, it's an undulation. It is a literally a waveform. Like <laughs> literally a waveform. That's what that's what music is. Um, all sound is rhythm because it's a wave, right? It's up and down, up and down, and so. Harmony is actually just different rates of sound waves, right? Every note is a rhythm happening too quickly for the human ear to perceive it as rhythm. So you can actually take a series of bass drums and speed them up to such an absurd rate that it actually creates just a note, just a constant hum. And this is, this is something you would have experienced if you've ever uh, turned on a blender or a fan or a lawnmower. Like if you've been mowing the lawn and then suddenly you tip the lawnmower up and it's meeting less resistance, it starts to spin slightly faster because there's no grass that it's hitting. And because it's spinning faster, the note will go up. You can try that sometime. But yeah, when, or I think if you've got a blender and you're blending something and then you put it to a faster setting, the eh noise will turn into eh, it'll go higher, right? You, you've probably experienced that before because pitch, musical pitch, a tone is rhythm. And so what's fascinating to me is that in the medieval, in the classical traditions in Europe, harmony kind of became like the thing that was really being explored, right? European classical music just went deep on harmony. What's interesting is that the West African music tradition went deep on not just rhythms, but polyrhythms, which interestingly is just harmony. 
at a different end of at a different extreme of the human ability to perceive sound. Polyrhythm is harmony of different rhythms, which itself, if you speed it up fast enough, is just harmony harmony, which I think is fascinating. I'd like to give you another example of polyrhythms. Um, this is in a time signature that I personally find absolutely fascinating. It's 12-8 time. The reason that 12-8 time is so interesting is because 12 is divisible by 3 and by 4. And so you can have feelings of 3 and feelings of 4 and feelings of 12 and feelings of 2 and feelings of 6 all happening within one measure of this type of music or across multiple measures. It's very, very fascinating to me. So I would like to give you a brief musical example of what it's like to experience all of these different types of rhythms in 12-8 time. Something I want to point out is that a polyrhythm played on various types of hand percussion or like world music percussion instruments doesn't really sound like a rock beat, does it? It doesn't really sound like that modern like boom, ka, boom, boom, ka type of beat. And yeah, it's not. The reason for that is because while there is mythology that says the rock beat came from Africa, it's not as simple as that. What instead happened was the polyrhythms that were being used in a West African context came alongside the slaves who were stolen forcibly from Africa and brought to the New World. Meanwhile, Europeans were doing music that had syncopation in the melody, in some of its rhythms. They had that going on. And when these two different cultural worlds collided with each other, their rhythms and their harmonies combined slowly over time and that combination gave us the sounds of modern music so if you were to travel back to like pre-colonial africa you're not gonna go to a village and hear someone playing something that sounds like an acdc drum beat that's just not going to happen the the history is more nuanced than that but again, this is an example of how cultural prejudices and racism can do a lot to affect the way we perceive music. All right. So I think we've covered polyrhythms, we've covered backbeats, we've covered syncopation. There are some things I would like to point out. There are, for example, types of drum beats that are used in modern music styles that don't necessarily fall into the narrow category of even just the backbeat, okay? So this is something that comes up in some of Ivor Meyer's presentations where he'll say this backbeat, the emphasis on two and four, is the basis of like all hip-hop, rock, funk, R&B, everything modern is based on that backbeat. This is false, that beat isn't even the basis of all rock music, and I'll, I'll show you a little bit of that in a second. Um, but interestingly, something that's worth mentioning is that having the snare placed on beats 2 and 4 is not necessarily to make beats 2 and 4 the emphasized or accented beats. The way you play the other beats in the measure can actually make them more pronounced than the backbeat. 
The best example of this is what happens in funk music. In funk drumming, especially in the style that was kind of pioneered by the likes of James Brown, what you'll have is a drummer who opens up the hi-hat. If you don't know what that is, have you ever seen a drummer and there's that one little stack of cymbals where there's one upside down on the bottom and there's one on the top of it and it seems like it can move up and down with a pedal? That's the hi-hat. And what they would do is hit it open on the first beat and then close it suddenly by the time you get to the second beat. So, And you hit the kick drum at the same time. Um, and then... Otherwise, you're playing a normal beat. Describing it is silly when I could just show you it sounds like this. So whereas your typical rock beat would be more like the emphasis is just on that two and four snare hit and the one hit is just there to be there and remind you where the start of the bar is, what's happening in funk is an emphasis on the one, an emphasis on the downbeat, even though the backbeat is present. And so that's what gives funk part of its characteristic funky feeling. That's what makes you dance, the downbeat. The thing that makes you dance in funk is not necessarily syncopated. Although I guess the guitars are probably doing some crazy syncopations like this. Now, it's also important for us to note that modern music does not only emerge from America. I often find that people kind of overstate this case. Not all modern music comes from an American mode of expression. The Caribbean and South America are also extraordinarily important when it comes to this. South and Central America are big contributors to modern music. When it comes to styles like soca, dancehall, calypso, other Caribbean genres, there is another type of beat that's used that doesn't fall into the description, admittedly the very American-centric description that someone like Ivor Myers would give about what modern drumming sounds like. So in the Caribbean styles, you'll hear a rhythm that is known, well, by its Spanish name, it's a tracio, and it sounds like this. You've probably heard that before. It's, I would say, probably one of the most popular rhythms in the world, honestly. Um, depending on the speed of that, how quickly it's going, the tempo, you might get different genres just by speeding it up or slowing it down. Um, that beat at a slower tempo is sometimes known as a dembo rhythm, which you'll hear tons of in Latin American music. Um, if you've ever heard the song Despacito, you've heard that rhythm. And I'm, if I'm not mistaken, Haitian compa music tends to be similarly slow like that and use that rhythm. On the opposite side of things, there's calypso and soca, which tend to be quite a bit faster. These genres also won't necessarily always have just a clap or a snare drum making that rhythm. Sometimes it'll be spread out between the kick drum and the snare. Or sometimes a partial tracio will take place over top of a kick drum that fills in the places where the snare isn't playing. So that might sound something like this. 
So what you've got there is four on the floor with a partial trasio over top of it, and in the places where the snare doesn't hit, the kick is filling in the parts that are missing, right? And again, this is something you've probably heard, especially if you've been around Caribbean Seventh-day Adventist churches. This is very commonly used in their praise and worship services. Now, it doesn't necessarily have to be distributed like that between the kick and the snare. In a genre like dance hall, for example, you could have um, more of an emphasis on the kick drum and fewer snare hits um, and a more strict adherence to just those three notes. And that might sound something like this. Now, you'll also occasionally hear African and Middle Eastern music that uses this beat, which is because it originates in Africa and spread to the surrounding area. But this rhythm is basically a short form of what is known in some parts of the world as the son clave, which is even more common in African music, especially West African styles, or anything that's been influenced by Nigerian Afro-pop music today. Um... Of course, the name clave is Western, um, and that's the way it's referred to in, you know, various Latin American genres that also use it because they got it from enslaved Africans who were brought to the New World. Um, but, you know, depending on where you go and which variation of this rhythm you use, there's going to be a ton of different ways that people refer to this rhythm. And I'm by no means an expert on all of them. So I'm just going to use clave because that's how it's come to be used in Western parlance. But when you hear it, you'll recognize that this is just all over music from many different parts of the Southern Hemisphere. So, yeah. Um, this particular variation, the son clave, is used in tons of music, and like I said, especially has been popularized with the rise of the genre known as Afrobeats, with an S, which is essentially like a modern hip-hop-influenced version of like Nigerian and otherwise West African pop music. Um, so that sounds approximately like this. So I've shared some of that with you just as a reminder that not all music functions under the same rhythmic structure today. That's just a fallacy. There, there is no way around the fact that that's not true. There are tons of different ways that different genres of music from different places use different rhythms. And I'm still mostly only talking about 4-4 four, four time, right? There is a ton of other stuff going on. In my Reframe uh, Adventist Worship video series, one thing I highlighted was the way that Black Americans took the rhythm of the waltz, which is more emphatic on a three type of rhythm, and basically took European waltz music and made it into a subgenre of gospel. The gospel waltz has a very unique feel to it, and it's a European rhythm, but it is definitely a characteristic of the Black Church's mode of worship. So the, the rhythm conversation just must be inherently more complicated and more nuanced than what many speakers in the church so far have given to us. Um, it's no longer responsible to define syncopation and, and stuff like this the way that they have. 
because uh, it just doesn't measure up to the facts of the world we live in, I'm sorry to say. Now, coming back to rock music, there are tons of examples of a particular type of beat that I don't really know if it has a name, but I call it four on the snare as a counterpoint to the classic four on the floor that I've mentioned. It's used in rock, it's used in metal, it's even actually used quite a bit in gospel music, but essentially you have a drummer who is hitting the snare drum and whatever cymbal they want at the same time on all four quarter notes, and then using the kick drum to drive accents in between. So in this type of beat, the snare drum is leading the beat, is driving the beat forward, and the snare drum is unsyncopated. In fact, it's just playing all the main quarter notes. And that sounds like this. Actually, let me give you a demonstration of it that crosses genres. I'll give you a rock demonstration, I'll give you a gospel demonstration, and I'll give you a metal one. Here we go. idea of a high-energy, downbeat-centric drumming style gets really, really crazy in metal, as you might have noticed from that last example. So in death metal specifically, one of the characteristic genre-defining beats is the blast beat. This is essentially hitting every eighth note or even every sixteenth note on the kick drums, on the snare drum, and on whichever cymbal of your choice. You can pick whatever symbol you want. They give you different colors. Literally all four limbs are usually involved for the drummer. It's really fast and it's really heavy. And it's not really syncopated at all most of the time. The first variation I'll show you is called the down blast, which gets its name from the fact that the snare drum kind of drives everything and it is hitting on the down beats. So here it is. The second variation of the blast beat is what's called the traditional blast. Here, the snare drum is actually on the off beats. It's on the ands or even the e and uh, like the offbeat 16th note spaces between quarter notes. Um, but because the snare is played so quickly, the drummer typically can't actually hit the snare drum very hard. It's more of a it's more of a flavor. It's more of a color in between the kick drums and cymbals, which are now driving the beat forward. The snare drum in this type of blast, the traditional blast, is usually a little on the quieter side. And actually, um, even when metal artists are using fake, like computerized programmed drums, they will still imitate this physical limitation by programming the snare drum hits slightly softer because that's what it would sound like if an actual drummer would play it. Now, overall, this version of the blast beat sounds really, really frantic. And it sounds like this. All right, I show you these because this is one of the characteristic genre-defining beats of death metal, of all things. It's a downbeat-focused groove. It's perhaps the most stereotypically evil and extreme drum beat there could possibly be. But 
It is not what Ivor Myers would call the devil's signature beat, which is, I think, a little strange. You would expect that if the devil's signature was that backbeat, that it would be the driving force behind the most extreme music, but it's not. It's because syncopation is not inherently tied to evil, and evil is not inherently tied to syncopation. The preachers who have driven that point home over and over again have been misleading us. The point here is that musical rhythm is way more complicated than people give it credit for. And that's the main thing. When it comes to this rhythm conversation, we have exaggerated it, we have oversimplified it, we have reduced it down to the lowest common denominator of understanding to the point that we've actually reduced it down to non-understanding. We have been teaching a myth. We have been teaching something that is just fundamentally not true. And I would say, by and large, a lot of the presenters who make a big deal about this stuff don't actually understand what syncopation is. Like I said, they know the syncopation for dummies version of it. But it's, uh, it's like something I said earlier in this podcast series to Marcos. You've heard of the book series, insert whatever, for dummies, bicycle repair for dummies, cooking for dummies. Well, sorry, this is syncopation for dummies. A lot of Adventist evangelists present music theory for dummies, music history for dummies. It is an oversimplified version that's meant to get you introduced to it, but it's not meant to be used as a basis, or at least shouldn't be used as a basis for a deep understanding of the topic. It would be, once again, I've said this before, but it would be like me sending in my application to be a professor at Andrews University saying, I would like to be an English professor. And they would say, what are your qualifications? And I would say, I before E except after C. That's a mnemonic device. That is an aphorism. That is something that is meant to be helpful to memorize a general rule that doesn't actually always apply. And in fact, really isn't a rule if you actually understand the way the English language and the way English grammar works. It is beyond unacceptable for Adventist evangelists and speakers to perpetuate the syncopation myth anymore. It's done, it's gone, it's over. It is no longer an acceptable point. I mean, it was never an acceptable point. But I think we're at a point now where people need to be actively ejected from the pulpit when they say it because it just means that they intend to not research or understand the concepts they're presenting before they get up in the pulpit. And I personally think that's wildly unacceptable. So... Now, when you hear the syncopation myth or any weird Adventist mythology about how rhythm works, you'll know better. All right, so now I would just like to take some time to talk a little bit about harmony. Now, while Adventism has hyperfixated on rhythm as the place where Satan most readily influences music, other communities have fixated on other things. For example, there is a long-standing myth that the tritone, either a fifth that has been flatted, or a fourth that has been augmented or sharpened, is the devil's interval, so-called. And, and the idea is that it traditionally is so evil and so connected to the occult that the Catholic Church banned it in the Middle Ages. This whole story is repeated all the time, often even by music teachers, unfortunately. 
But if you know Adam Neely, the music YouTuber, he has done enough research on this to demonstrate pretty undeniably that this is a myth. A myth that grew out of first a joke among classical musicians, as well as an arms race to grab onto evil mythology by heavy metal bands much later. So, here is an example of how a heavy metal band might interpret the sound of a tritone as being evil. When you hear something like that, it's very easy, I would say, to be like, oh, wow, that's so tense. Like, that note and that note together. Ooh, that's dark. That's creepy. That, that must be genuinely evil. That must be Satan's. I get it. it. You can use it that way. But there is another factor involved in the mythology of the tritone. The tritone is a very important decorative note in the blues, a black American-made music genre that really laid the foundation for almost everything else that came afterwards. Blues, like jazz and gospel, did a lot to mess around with the West's sense of harmony. So the main reason why tritones were relatively unpopular in medieval Europe, for example, was because it's an awkward-sounding interval. It would be kind of hard for two people to sing that in tune with each other. Certainly a lot harder than this, or this, right? Or this. All of those are very consonant. They sound nice together, but this has a lot of tension. It feels unresolved. It feels like it wants to go and resolve that way, right? So the dissonance and unrest is the reason why a lot of composers would stay away from it just because it wasn't always easy to integrate into music. It was purely a practical concern. But blues and gospel music came along and they did something different with the tritone. A lot of it had to do with the way that black people were singing, but a lot of it also translated very easily to guitar. Essentially, when composing or improvising melodies, black musicians would use a note that was slightly flatter than the third of a major scale, or the fifth of a minor scale, or it could be a raised note. It's probably easier to just demonstrate, so listen to these two pairs of examples and note which one sounds bluesier. Number one. So first, listen to this. this. And here's an example in the context of a minor key. So in both of those cases, the second example definitely had that bluesier feel to it, right? What this blue note did was it added tension and complexity to the scale. It literally added more notes to the scale than would otherwise be in it. And it made the harmony inherently denser. It created ambiguity in certain contexts as to whether something was major or minor. And since vocalists and guitarists in particular could bend notes up or slide notes down in a way that, say, a piano couldn't, 
it was possible to toy with notes in between notes. That's actually a feature of some non-Western music, especially in the part of the world called the Middle East, West Asia, North Africa. Um, there are microtones between semitones. So a semitone is a step like this. Notes that are right next to each other on the keyboard, whereas a whole step would be like this. So a whole step here is like C to D. Right? That would be a white note to a white note on the piano, typically, if you leave out what's going on between E and F and B and C. But, you know, C, D, C, D. That's a whole step. This is a half step. C and D flat. Um, and what's going on with a microtone is that a microtone is between a half step. It's a smaller division of harmony. It's not something that's used really at all most of the time in Western music, but... Lots of other cultures have these interesting notes between notes, or maybe a different tuning system, or maybe a different way of conceiving of scales. In any case, this was something foreign being introduced into Western harmony, and it made the Black American musician's harmonic palette more colorful. And it becomes part of a much larger tradition of blues, jazz, gospel, soul, and R&B artists really messing around with the quote-unquote rules of harmony, creating much richer and more experimental sounds than what had been heard before. Now that's not to say that classical composers with a more impressionist approach weren't already exploring strange new territory with harmony. They were definitely doing that, but they were doing it in a different way. Black Americans in their music were exploring a much different emotional space from a different set of experiences, and that brought with it a certain amount of angst, struggle, and yes, soul to the use of this new approach to harmony, which included notes between notes, uh, things like major thirds and minor thirds happening at the same time but somehow sounding good, uh, things that by traditional standards shouldn't have worked but did. Unfortunately, because American society was deeply prejudiced against black people, the mythology that had started out as a kind of joke among classical musicians, the joke of the evil tritone, turned into actual stereotyping legends about blues musicians. The satanic tritone became a thing that people actually believed in. Myths about blues guitarist Robert Johnson going down to the crossroads to sell his soul to the devil in exchange for blues guitar skill and fame reinforced this association between the blues and its derivative musical genres and forms and the devil. This was compounded by the association that white Christians had made between black people and things like voodoo and other African-derived religious practices. All of these associations were exaggerated, blown out of proportion, and framed in a prescriptivist context where certain musical sounds happen, they have to mean this one thing invariably. I actually personally noticed this a lot among gospel keyboardists, ironically enough, because many of my friends who were playing in this genre would make semi-uncomfortable jokes about the prevalence of tritones in their own playing, and this association with the devil. There's certainly a contradiction to be, to be found there, right? Gospel keyboardist plays at church, plays literally music of the gospel, and uses, what, the devil's interval? Well, newsflash, it's not actually the devil's interval. It doesn't actually belong to him. That's something that people made up and ran with and exaggerated. 
But here's the thing. American gospel music and folk music, whether white or black, is already full of dominant seventh chords, which, if you're familiar, have a tritone contained within them between the third and the seventh notes of the chord. So if you take something like this, a C dominant seventh chord, where you have C, which is the root, E, the third, G, the fifth, and B flat, the seventh, Nice sounding chord. You've heard chords like that plenty of times before, I'm sure. But there is a tritone in there between the E, the third, and the seventh, which is B flat. Kind of ugly and gross sounding. Although, in the context of the rest of the chord, really pleasant to the ear. Interesting. But yeah, tritones like that are all over dominant seventh chords. And they are used very, very frequently in gospel music, both as in secondary dominant chords and I guess what you'd call tritone substitutions, with which both involve dominant seventh chords. But interestingly, these are even in the hymns, right? The, the books that of, sorry, not the books, the songs in the books we call hymnals. Those chords are in there as well. For example, if you were to take a well-known song like It Is Well With My Soul, uh, there is a secondary dominant chord which contains that tritone in the second line of that song. So let me demonstrate that for you. Here we go. If it's like, When peace like a river attendeth my way When sorrows like sea Sea, Tritone See below's roll. So that D dominant seventh chord there has a tritone between the notes C and F sharp. If I just isolate it and play it like that, it is ugly. It's tense. If I just stack them, oh, that sounds menacing. But that is in there in the context of C billows roll and this is one of those spots in that hymn when you hear people perform it that some people will either cut the end of that line short and just go straight into the next one like see billows roll whatever or if they want to hold it out longer if they're doing like a more strict rhythm they'll go see billows roll and they'll add another tritone, another dominant seventh chord in there. This time you've got your F and your B. Again, that's such an abrasive sound on its own, but that's so pretty in a different context, right? So this is something that you've probably heard a bunch of times and it's fascinating that this sound and this sound uh, whoops. It's fascinating to me that that has so much mythology of the devil around it at the same time that it is being used without question in Christian hymns. And it's just, it's funny to me to have to point that out to people. But I think it's a good example of how mythology can just spread when people don't know what they're talking about. So, is the tritone in these songs satanic? Of course not. Because, 
And this is the argument that musicians have been using from the very beginning of this ridiculous debate. It's not a matter of the individual characteristics of the music, an instrument, or a type of beat, or a type of chord, or an interval, but what you use it for and what you are trying to say with the music. It all comes back to that tried and true argument, which has been true from the very beginning. In fact, even though many people have tried to reinforce the idea of the satanic tritone, whether as a form of discrimination or as a form of rebellion against traditional Christian sensibilities, the tritone is not only associated with hell. In fact, in the scale known as the Lydian mode, the tritone is present and it is often said to have a dreamy or even heavenly sound. So you might hear something like this in the Lydian mode. I'm just making stuff up here, but you get the feeling. And that that's so pretty, right? But Tritone, ugly, evil, devil, demon, but it's not. It's just context. It's how you use it. And the same sound can mean different things in the way that it is applied. That C and F sharp tritone it's telling a different story. And just so that I don't leave you feeling prejudiced against the metal example where I use those two notes, let's reprise that metal tritone theme I've been using, but let's play it now in the context of a Lydian mode thing. Here's the thing, you can do almost anything in music, you can go almost anywhere, because music is about telling a story. So you can use a, a really ugly chord, like I don't even know what I would call this, but here's this chord. I mean literally on the bottom you've got like a C major, like C and E, and then up here I've got an E flat. Oh, that's terrible. That just doesn't feel like it belongs, right? Ah, awful. But something really gritty and ugly like that can also be resolved to something soothing and comfortable and beautiful, right? You can go. You start in a place of tension and resolution is where you end up. You start in a place of a problem and you end up with the solution. Or dare I say, you start with the fall and you come to salvation. 
music is using sound for metaphorical storytelling. Music is about storytelling. It's about allowing the sound to take you on a journey made of metaphors. The ugly sounds and the tense sounds are just as important to the story as the stable, comfortable sounds. The parts that get your heart racing are as important as the parts that let your heart settle. But what do the metaphors mean? Is there some kind of map to tell you what the metaphors are all about? How do you know which metaphors are the ones God approves of? Well, here's the trick. There is no objective roadmap because the metaphorical meaning of music is always a matter of interpretation on the part of the listener. We saw from our harmony and rhythm examples earlier that a lot of the associations we have with different musical sounds are just that associations. The meaning of any given piece of music will largely depend on the interpretive and emotional ideas brought to the act of listening by the hearer, by the listener. You never just passively hear music. You are always interpreting it. Sure, a shallow act of barely listening to the background music at an event isn't really active interpretation, but you are still choosing to interpret the music as, say, less important than the conversation you're having with someone. So if you have racial or ethnic prejudices, if you have theological biases, if you have personal spiritual experiences of evil or suffering associated with certain kinds of music, then you will bring that to your listening experience. If you have social expectations of how you're supposed to act when you hear a certain sound, you will bring those associations to the act of listening. That's the difficulty of doing worship and music in the context of a multicultural church that is open to people from all walks of life. You don't know when someone is going to associate that sound with God while someone else is going to associate that sound with the time in their life when they were doing drugs. We are bound to see things differently from each other at times. And that is where scripture tells us in Romans 14, which I encourage you to study, do not be divided over disputable matters. But what does God think of how our music sounds? What assumptions, what thoughts, what ideas, what lines of interpretation does God bring to the listening experience when he hears us play music? Well, Scripture has, I think, already answered that question for us. 1 Samuel 16.7 says, For the Lord does not see as mortals see. They look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. What is God looking for? What expectations is he bringing when he looks at the music we present to him? More than anything, he's looking at our hearts. Anyways, this has been a little exploration of music and how some of our misconceptions about it and music and worship and meaning can all be cleared up if we just familiarize ourselves a little more with the art form. Something that is going to come up in the rest of this podcast series that I'm doing with Marcos, as well as in my own video series, is the fact that some people actually avoid gaining knowledge about music while still speaking about it and teaching about it publicly from a theological perspective. There is a demographic of people who approaches not only music, but, you know, other areas in life as well, from what I would describe as a danger epistemology. It's an approach to know—well, it, it's an approach to knowledge— 
that essentially revolves around purity and fear. To someone like this, knowing things about music styles, music theory, and the way that that theory is applied to newer eras of history in music uh, is kind of an unnecessary risk. You risk being exposed to evil, corrupting influences. And so from that perspective, having knowledge about how modern music styles work would itself actually be a deficit. To this kind of person, in order to have a proper spiritual discernment about music, we would be better off not knowing about how different styles of music work. In this framework, less knowledge is actually better. Now, I think, and I think anyone who hears that description, would rightly react thinking, that's a little ridiculous. And, well, it is. And it easily falls apart with even the smallest amount of scrutiny. But if you want me to fully unpack that one for you, you will have to tune in to later episodes in this series, and you'll hear more about it. I want to say thanks to Marcos for allowing me to do this for you. I know this is, again, kind of different than some of our previous episodes, but I didn't want to leave you hanging during this time when we haven't quite been able to finish recording the last things. So, uh, Marcos, thank you for me allowing me to do this in your podcasting space and giving me access to your audience. Audience, I hope you've enjoyed this and found it both informative and entertaining. And I guess uh, that's it for me. I will catch you all next time. That's it for today, everyone. We are out of time. So make sure you keep tuning in. Like, share, subscribe, tell your friends about it, and uh, enjoy the journey along with us. In the meantime, if you haven't had a chance to do it yet, I invite you to go to the storychurchproject.com and check out the new Bible study guide, The Road, A Journey Through the Narrative of Scripture. The second edition is now available. And this is a Bible study set that's been specifically designed for communicating the narrative of redemption, the story of Scripture, to millennials, Zeds, uh, post-church, unchurched, post-modern generations. Make sure you check that out. Get your hands on a copy, and I will catch you next week. (laughs) 